Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host, Jeremy Kaur. Today, we will be talking to one of the most influential people in healthcare, the former president and CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Toby Cosgrove. The Cleveland Clinic is universally recognized as one of the best health systems in the world. He's here today to talk about his book, The Cleveland Clinic Way, Lessons in Excellence from One of the World's Leading Healthcare Organizations. Toby, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Jeremy. Uh, It's an absolute honor to be speaking with you today. In fact, you've actually been mentioned in a few of the other books that I have uh, done for my show, ranging from the history of heart surgery to more of the uh, innovation in the business side of medicine. I wonder if you could begin by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here today. Um, I am uh, have had a sort of a circuitous route uh, to get to where I am. I wound up uh, growing up in a little town in upstate New York on the Canadian border and went to Williams College and then followed up with the University of Virginia Medical School. Um, happily, uh, I uh, got part of my surgical training and then was, went off to Vietnam Uh, And when I got back, I finished my training at Mass General and Boston Children's Hospital. Interestingly, when I finished, I was unemployed. Um, And uh, all of a sudden, a letter came from the Cleveland Clinic uh, looking for someone to come join them in heart surgery. And I leapt at the opportunity. Um, And I have been here ever since now, 44 years. Uh, And it is, uh, I started out as a cardiac surgeon and uh, and became chairman of that department for 15 years. And uh, I was about ready to hang up my uh, cardiac surgical spikes. Uh, the opportunity to came to be CEO, and 
I, it has been a, a fabulous uh, trip um, to, to have that opportunity to uh, lead this organization. And I've had a absolutely uh, very satisfying and productive uh, career. So it's been a great, great ride. One of the things I found really interesting was that in, in your book, uh, you mentioned that when you graduated medical school, you did so at, at close to the bottom of the class and, and were told that you should not be going into cardiac surgery, yet you went on to become an extremely successful cardiac surgeon who went on to have numerous inventions uh, that are you know used in, in numerous operating rooms across the world and then went on to lead one of the best health systems in the world. Uh, you have the learning disability dyslexia, which... Uh, you have called a blessing in disguise. Can you talk to us about how dyslexia has impacted your life? Yeah, well, it impacted my life. First of all, when I got to college, I had to take uh, language and I took French. Um, I, it started out by the first day I went in there and they were uh, reading conversational French and they were talking about wee oui, wee oui, monsieur and I looking up and down the page for W-E-W-E and it wasn't there any place. And it went from bad to worse over time. I spent... Uh, four semesters and got uh, three D minuses and a D with extraordinary work. And I did not know that I was dyslexic. In fact, I didn't know that I never heard the word until I was about 34. Um, and uh, well through my residency, I just thought that I wasn't uh, very quick. Um, and uh, the advantage of dyslexia, frankly, was that uh, I learned that I had to work a lot harder than most people to get through uh, various things. Um, and so that instilled a work ethic. And the second thing is I found out subsequently that I seem to have a, uh, think differently about things. Uh, and as I find out, uh, very often dyslexics uh, seem to be um, more creative um, and uh, this certainly has uh, allowed me to be involved in uh, creating new procedures, new um, uh, techniques, new uh, equipment. Um, and it has been a real blessing uh, to be able to think a little bit out of the box. And I'm sure dyslexia had something to do with that. What advice would you give to a child or a parent of a child who is struggling with a learning disability like, like dyslexia? Well, I've talked to a lot of them, and I always tell them exactly the same thing. Uh, I think there's two uh, issues that you have to think about for a parent. Um, you can't uh, allow the school system uh, to ruin a, a child's uh, self-esteem, uh, and that's one of the things that happens to a lot of dyslexics. Um, and the second thing is I always talk to them about the fact that I think dyslexia is a, an advantage and a gift uh, that allows you to think differently and have uh, different approaches and frequently different approaches allow you to be more successful. So I um, give those two pieces of advice, one to the child and the other to the parent. Can you talk a little bit about some of your inventions and contributions to cardiac surgery? Yeah, most of them came from uh, taking something that I had seen in a different uh, venue and bringing them to cardiac surgical problems. Uh, one of the ones that I uh, think about was uh, 
I used I spent a lot of time on boats and I used to watch the boats going up and down the St. Lawrence River and they all had these little things that stuck out on the bow of the boat uh, to give it better uh, hydraulics as it went through the water. Um, and we found uh, that in cardiac surgery that uh, we used to be, have a lot of people who had uh, strokes or various organ dysfunctions and we found that it was related to little chips of atherosclerosis that would be get broken off uh, from the, uh, where we put the tubes in the in the heart to put them on the heart lung machine. Generally, the blood uh, coming out of the heart goes through a uh, orifice that is about the size of a, a quarter and in diameter, and we were bringing the blood back through a tube. Uh, that was essentially the diameter of a pencil. And so obviously the velocity uh, went way up. And um, we thought, and essentially what we realized was is that we were essentially um, uh, driving a very uh, high velocity stream into uh, the aorta, which knocked off these little plaques of atherosclerosis. Um, so what we did is we closed the tip. We put uh, that little bow uh, nubbin that sticks out into the um, bow of a boat it back into the catheter and put holes in the side of the catheter. So essentially the blood came out in a spray rather than a, no a nozzle form. And so it was a little bit like instead of cleaning your patio, you were sprinkling the flowers. And we saw about a 30% reduction in the incidence of that particular problem. Um, and, um, it was, um, something that, uh, was very beneficial to the patients, but it was like taking an idea from one place and moving it into another location. I did the same thing with, um, the heart, uh, coming off of the left, uh, atrium is a thing called the left atrial appendage. <clears throat> it's about the size of your thumb. And when a patient has uh, irregular heartbeat or atrial fibrillation, blood clot forms in it, and the blood clot can break off and uh, wind up causing strokes. And about a third of the strokes in the United States are related to that. So we as cardiac surgeons thought, uh, thinking, well, let's just get rid of the left atrial appendage. Uh, so we would try and sew it off from the inside and the stitches would pull through. Um, we would try and tie it off from the outside and then uh, if we tied it too tight, uh, it would cut through the atrial uh, appendage and we'd get horrific bleeding. So then we tried stapling it and sometimes the staples would cut through and we'd get horrific bleeding. <clears throat> so I'm down uh, on vacation with my daughters and we're at the pool and I say, okay, ladies, tell me all the things that you put on your hair. You know, those funny clips that go uh, look like the jaws of death. Um, and, uh, you know, the barrettes and all the things that you put on your hair to hold it in place. And from that, we developed a clip that goes on the left atrial appendage, uh, that's sort of spring loaded. Uh, they've now put, uh, 10,000 of those in patients and there's been no complications at all. So it's taking an idea you see one place and applying it to a problem you see in cardiac surgery. Wow. What what inspired you to write the book, The Cleveland Clinic Way? Well, I wanted to explain uh, the organization to a more, more of a lay public. 
because I think most people don't realize how different we are as an organization. Um, is I think I explained in the book, we start out with a very different premise. We're a group practice, um, that is a group of doctors um, which uh, governs itself. Uh, we have physician leadership. We are all salaried uh, with no bonuses uh, or incentives to do more or to do less. Um, we have one-year contracts um, and we have annual professional reviews. Uh, which we take very seriously and spend a lot of time at it. And uh, that is, we're the only hospital in the country that I know that's organized that way. Um, some people have portions of that, but nobody that I am aware of has that whole uh, sort of organization. And <clears throat> so with that as a, way, as a background, it allows us to do a lot of different things uh, in a very team-oriented approach. And I thought it was important to try and uh, explain uh, that uh, organizational structure and uh, what came from it. Uh, and I wanted to do it in a sort of a story fashion that made it relevant uh, rather than uh, dryly academic. What, what was the origin of that group practice model of the Cleveland Clinic? <clears throat> What's interesting, um, the, the, there were three doctors um, uh, who fought together in World War I, uh, led by Dr. Kreil, um, and they realized uh, that they could do better working together than they could do, could do independently. Uh, so they came back and formed the Cleveland Clinic in 1921, uh, and this was really a radical uh, idea uh, that they had. Uh, and they were referred to as um, medical socialists or Bolsheviks, um, that this was uh, essentially working together and they decided to take a salary uh, and they would uh, put the proceeds uh, from the practice back into the organization. Uh, so it started that way and really uh, they were very closely allied at that time with the Mayo Clinic and the Mayo Brothers. Um, and uh, part of the uh, structure really came from the discussion that they had with the people at the Mayo Clinic. So uh, we're younger by about 25 years than the Cleveland Clinic is, uh, but uh, a similar model with a few uh, different wrinkles. What are some of the arguments for and against these large group practice models? Well, I think I argue pretty hard for it, uh, the fact that uh, we really uh, come together as a team um, and, uh, you know, we have uh, no incentive to do more or to do less, as I said, mm -hmm. than just having a straight salary. Um, I, for example, as a cardiac surgeon, could tell people, look, I think you need a heart operation and it didn't make any difference to my uh, financial uh, uh, remuneration. Um, and, um, th I thought that was a wonderful thing to be able to tell people. It's interesting that subsequently, um, Dartmouth, uh, did a study of the last 18 years of life of people, uh, and Medicare patients. And they found that the two organizations that had the lowest cost in the last 18 months were Mayo Clinic and the Cleveland Clinic, uh, both of which are half salaried physicians. And so essentially, we just weren't doing extra tests or extra procedures. We were trying to um, be as appropriate as, and, and so I think it really helps guide the 
um, incentives for physicians. I think that's a, a very big plus. What is, what are some of the arguments against that that group practice model? Well, people think that it doesn't incent doctors to uh, perform the work as hard. If you're just salaried, you know, you got your salary coming regardless, and so you don't go the extra mile, you, your productivity falls off. Um, we uh, measure the productivity of physicians here, and uh, we ask them to practice in the 70th percentile of uh, practices across the country as far as productivity is concerned. But you have to remember that uh, we are also a teaching and a research organization. So uh, we have a tripartite mission of those three things. And so uh, we ask that they also be productive in those other areas. Can you elaborate on how this model can both improve outcomes and patient experience while ultimately lowering the cost of care? Well, I think uh, I've addressed the lowering of cost of care uh, because there's no incentive to do do more. Uh, The the patient experience um, and uh, the quality, we we are fanatical about measuring uh, here and uh, creating data. And it started out really in cardiac surgery uh, in the early 70s when we started a registry of, of all the patients who underwent cardiac surgery. And we followed those patients up uh, regularly every five years and wrote extensively about that uh, from our registry of thousands of patients who'd had uh, cardiac surgery. And that resulted in really a lot of changes in the cardiac surgical uh, world on the basis of what we learned from that. When I became uh, chairman of cardiac surgery, I thought it was important that we report to the cardiologist what our uh, risks were and what our mortality rates were on an annual basis. And we started to do that. And then the cardiologist would say, well, can we have your slides? And then I said, well, why don't we just put uh, the results together in a little booklet? So we put them together in a little booklet, and then we realized it's probably great for two reasons to be transparent and to collect this data. One is we always learn more uh, from looking at the data because we always find something that we're not doing as well as we'd like to, and we can address that particular issue. Uh, The second is uh, I realized that uh, we really are community uh, assets. and we have a responsibility to report um, our uh, results to the community in a transparent sort of way. So we did that in cardiac surgery for a number of years. And then as I became CEO, we uh, went and expanded that on that concept. And now every institute or department uh, has a uh, outcomes book where they uh, put together the data on a linear basis, uh, essentially the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, looking at uh, what uh, the results of our efforts have been. Uh, it's surprising really very few places have picked up on that. Uh, we put a lot of time and money uh, at that effort, but I think it, it, it is A, responsible, and B, it, uh, it improves our uh, results because we're looking at them in a very critical way on an annual basis. Can you talk a bit about the, the power of collaborative care? Yeah, 
So the other, other thing that's interesting is, you know, since we're all a team uh, and uh, we uh, got each other's back, I mean, you can call anybody here. For example, I'm in the operating room and I got a problem. Uh, I have no uh, compunction at all about calling one of my colleagues and saying, A, can you help? Or B, do you have any suggestions about what we might do here? Um, and similarly, I, I find that my colleagues in medicine or cardiology or whatever specialty I need are there with the same sort of uh, support. It really is about the importance of uh, being a team. And parenthetically, let me just say that uh, team play has uh, become the, uh, the new norm in healthcare. Healthcare has gotten to be so complicated that nobody can totally surround the total amount of uh, capabilities. And so you have to count on a team and the team includes everybody from uh, the person who mops the floor uh, to the nurses, to the um, dietitians, to the uh, medical uh, staff. Uh, and any, any one of the individuals can ruin the outcome come of for a patient. It, it's interesting that at the Cleveland Clinic, on average, 110 people touch a cardiac surgical patient on their trip through their through the hospital. So it's a big team. Uh, and um, the importance of having a, a great team uh, is vital. You can't a cardiac surgeon couldn't do it without all of these people supporting them. Would you please discuss institutes and care paths for our listeners? Sure. So uh, when I arrived at the Cleveland Clinic, we uh, had a waiting room. And on one side of the waiting room were the cardiologists. And on the other side were the cardiac surgeons. And I had everything in common with these cardiologists. I mean, we had the same patients. We were dealing with the same disease processes. Um, they would come to the operating room, and I'd go to the cath lab, and we'd talk constantly, and i walked back and forth across that. Now, but I was in the Department of Surgery with colorectal surgeons and neurosurgeons and gynecologists, uh, and about the only thing that we had in common was we shared a locker room and wore gloves. Um, and um, so when I got thinking about uh, how we might, uh, and, and if you stop and look at it, a hospital is really organized around the guild system of doctors, departments of surgery, departments of medicine, pediatrics, et cetera. Patients don't come to us that way. So we reorganized um, around um, patients' problems. Uh, for example, and in, in, in we brought them uh, together a neurologic institute that has neurologists, neurosurgeons, and psychiatrists all in the same organization. In the cardiovascular institute, uh, there's cardiologists, cardiac surgeons, vascular medicine, vascular surgery, all in the same organization. So we reorganize the hospital around patients' problems. Isn't it interesting to have a hospital organized around patients' problems rather than around doctors' specialties? Um, and that has uh, really uh, been a terrific thing for us in, in terms of uh, collaboration uh, between the medical and the surgical specialties in terms of thinking about innovative approaches because you may see somebody at, uh, you know, who's a cardiologist and you're a surgeon and, 
at the coffee pot and say, you know, I got Mrs. Jones. I just don't know what to do with her. What do you think? How can we come together and find a new um, approach to her? And it's really fostered uh, innovative thinking and collaborative thinking about a patient's issues. Now, to, to your question about care paths, again, uh, the thinking goes that um, if you're thinking about let's say building a car, <clears throat> you don't want everybody doing it differently. Uh, you want to have standardization and the standardization winds up with a better product and lower cost. And so we begin to look at uh, our patients with, let's say, hip and knee replacements or cardiac surgery or you name it, what their problem was. And why should everybody have to be practicing uh, different differently? And, why wouldn't we go and figure out uh, what the best uh, approach is and try to implement that and standardize it? So that's what we did, and we called it Care Pass. We now have about 120 different Care Paths that we have um, put together. Uh, it has come together with from the physicians all uh, trying to figure out what the best practice was, and then everybody uh, practicing that uh, particular uh approach every time we've done that we've seen the quality improve and the costs come down um, so um, and the big the big um, the big uh, concern about that amongst physicians is well how are you ever going to innovate and it's and and these things are not something that are written in stone or in tablet form uh, they are constantly being revised I think you have to look at uh, what the standard is going to be, uh, practice is going to be as new things come along and uh, you have new knowledge. Uh, and so they continue to be revised, but I think it is a way to begin to improve both quality and uh, decrease costs. So we're very enthusiastic about it. In your book, you talk about how it takes on average of 13 years for a healthcare innovation to become a mainstream standard of care. What are some of the enemies of this innovation? Well, innovation, I think the biggest uh, enemy of innovation is physicians and how we're trained. And, and let's think about how a physician is trained. Uh, you get into medical school because you've been very good at uh, organic chemistry, which is just memorization. Uh, <clears throat> and then you go to medical school and you spend four years essentially memorizing. Um, and then you become a house officer and you do what the chief resident tells you to do. There's no incentive for creativity. And then you become a chief resident and you do what the junior staff tells you to do. And then you become a junior staff and you do what the chief of staff tells you to do. And so you arrive at 40 something years old, uh, a full staff member, and uh, you have been selected uh, not for your creativity, but because you've been able to uh, learn and memorize and follow a prescribed script. Um, and um, so you've been selected out and trained out of creativity and innovation. Now, the other, and so the, the second thing is that you are, in fact, dealing with people's lives. Um, and uh, so those, uh, there is a reluctance to. Uh, do something that is particularly different just for that reason can, rather than following the tried and true. 
So those are the factors I think that really uh, prevent um, the acceptance of uh, new technologies. And really, if you look at it, uh, 13 years, it's almost the half-life of a doctor. So essentially, if you don't learn it in medical school or you don't learn it in your residency, the chances are that you're not uh, going to be adopting something uh, new along the way. So uh, I think those factors all uh, slow down innovation in healthcare. Um, and uh, I haven't seen a major change in that um, over time. So slow. Right. You call places like the Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, and John Hopkins or Johns Hopkins hotbeds of innovation with a high tolerance for renegades who are never content with the status quo and you know willing to you know take failure and learn from it. Uh, will you please talk about how uh, the Cleveland Cl- Cleveland Clinic encourages risk taking and innovation, and uh, what are some of the major recent innovations to come out of Cleveland Clinic? Well, I think you have to look at our history. I mean, essentially, our history was uh, of an organization that was formed by a, a renegade, renegades with a new um, approach to thinking about uh, health care. Uh, and it, that has continued. And uh, I remember um, there was uh, the first coronary angiogram, which happened totally by mistake. Um, and, but, uh, Mason Sones, the gentleman who did it first said he recognized that, uh, that he had discovered something really important and went on to do it on purpose after that. Uh, then along came coronary, um, uh, that established coronary angiography, then came coronary bypass surgery, which they worked on for 10 years to try and figure out how you, uh, fix the obstructions in the coronary arteries. Uh, then came uh, the approach to uh, lumpectomies for breasts, um, and I remember it was thought to be heresy that you would not do a radical mastectomy in somebody, an individual who had breast cancer, as opposed to uh, just doing a lumpectomy and radiation. Um, so there has been a, sort of a history of those types of things going on. Uh, and uh, a willingness to accept uh, individuals who were trying the, something new. I remember uh, early on, and this is sort of gives you a flavor of the uh, organization. Uh, early on, I was trying to figure out how we could do heart surgery without blood transfusions. And one of the th- things that I would do is allow patients to be anemic afterwards and rebuild their own blood. And so uh, I got called to Dr. Sohn's office one day and said, what the hell are you doing here? You know, my patient's anemic up on the floor. And I said, uh, this is uh, the guy who initially did coronary angiography. And I said to him, Mason, I said, uh, you didn't know what you're doing when you started uh, coronary uh, angiography. I don't know what I'm doing now, but, you know, I'm trying. And he said, "Okay, go ahead. Uh, so he uh, was going to give me permission as a young surgeon to try the new uh, sort of unproven approach to things. And as it turned out, it worked. Um, so that's the sort of tolerance that I think that the organization has for uh, people with different kinds of ideas. 
That's amazing. That's that's really really fascinating. Uh, speaking of the the innovation piece, you know, in 2006, the Cleveland Clinic underwent a cultural and uh, organizational makeover to focus more on patient experience. Uh, you even went so far as to create an office of patient experience and appoint your first uh, chief patient experience officer. Will you please tell our listeners what led up to this and inspired this makeover and some of the results you've seen now that it's been there for over a decade? Pretty embarrassing as a story. <clears throat> so I um, turned out that uh, well, Michael Porter, a professor at the Harvard Business School, was a friend and he wrote uh, a uh, case study on the Cleveland Clinic and asked me if I would come up when he presented it to his class. So I go up to um, the um, business school, and I've never been in a business school before in my life, so I was very nervous. Um, and I'm standing in front of this class in sort of a horseshoe-shaped auditorium, and uh, I'm about halfway through the Q&A with the, with the students, and the student in the second row on the left-hand side raises her hand, and I said, yeah. She said, Dr. Cosgrove, um, my father uh, had mitral valve prolapse, and we understand that you've done more of those operations than anybody else in the country. But Dr. Cosgrove, we decided not to come to you because we heard you don't have empathy. Dr. Cosgrove, do you teach empathy? And I went, whoa. I, <laughs> I, don't, I can't remember anything I said after that. Now, as fate would ha have it, I'm, I was pretty rocked by that. And so as fate would have it, um, about 10 days later, I'm in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, and we are partnering with a hospital that is being built in the opening there. And the uh, CEO of the hospital is standing up and said, this hospital is dedicated to the body and the spirit and the soul of the patient. And I'm going, yada, yada, yada. And I happen to look over, and there is the king of Saudi Arabia and the crown prince, who are both at this opening ceremony, and they're weeping. And tears are coming right down their cheeks at, at this uh, speech that the CEO's giving. And I'm saying, whoa, Toby, you have really missed something here. You better rethink what's going on. So um, I said, you know, we have got to. And so I'm looking back at my career. And when I started as a medical student, in one uh, day at Boston Children's Hospital <clears throat> in congenital heart surgery, we lost five kids. Um, and when I was uh, a resident, uh, mortality rate in cardiac surgery was approaching double digits. And now the uh, mortality rate was 1%, and patients now wanted um, have an experience and a relationship with their doctor. And I had decided that I was going to spend all my time in the operating room uh, and uh, advancing the techniques of cardiac surgery. And I would do two, three, four cases a day, get trying to get better and better and better and better at uh, all these details. Um, and now I recognize we really needed to do something uh, uh, better for uh, the patients and we need to think about the patient experience. So I created the office, I wanted to make it a priority, so I created the chief experience officer, um, which is the first one in the country. And we began to look at, okay, what is quality uh, in a hospital? 
Well, quality clearly is the clinical outcomes. And as I told you earlier, we had looked at those and tried to record them and measure them and report them. And then it was also the physical experience and the emotional experience. So the physical experience, we began to look at all kinds of things. Um, you know, we, we thought that probably one of the most humiliating things that happens to uh, you in the hospital is you go in and you take all your clothes off and put on a Johnny, um, which is exposed in your backside. <laughs> um, and so we worked uh, with Diane van Furstenberg and developed a wrap gown, uh, much like her wrap dress, um, and uh, to try and deal with that. We looked at the uh, physical aspect of the architecture and tried to bring more light, natural light, into the rooms and make the rooms a little less uh, feel less technical. Uh, and then we said it's time to deal with the emotional aspect. And uh, the and so we took all of our employees, some forty thousand of them at the time, uh, in groups offline and we put them around the table mixing them all up doctors nurses janitors etc um, and we talked about the cleveland clinic experience and when we came out of there we gave everybody a button that said caregiver and we began to think of everybody as part of the caregiving team and we refer to everybody in the hospital as a caregiver um, and what we've seen now is patient satisfaction has gone up enormously uh, and put us in the sort of 90th percentile in the country uh, from uh, being at the 50th percentile. <clears throat> We've seen the engagement of our caregivers go way up as they now feel that they're part of the team. So it's been a, it's been a very good experience for us. Can you please talk a, a little bit about heart or H-E, or sorry, or, or hear, empathize, apologize, respond, thank and uh, what Cleveland Clinic has done to, you know, really focus on and improve this caregiver-patient communication. Yeah, this is, we. You know, the next thing we found is that <clears throat> the biggest complaint that we have, uh, regardless of, every time we measure it, is around communication. Um, and uh, so we took uh, all of our physicians, uh, including yours truly, uh, offline uh, for a half a day of, or a full day actually, of communication education. And the heart that you talk about was one of the uh, nomograms that we use to uh, tell people about how to manage their communication in terms of particularly around complaints, of how you listen and um, you. Um, follow through on each one of those steps uh, to uh, be more, to better communicate or better communication with our uh, patients and frankly with each other. And that has been a great step. Uh, I don't think we could ever do too much of that uh, education around communication because it's still the biggest complaint that we have uh, from patients. The Cleveland Clinic has really focused on health and wellness instead of just treating sick patients. Um, can you talk to me about some of the 
uh, big wellness initiatives and policies that you have helped bring about. Uh, I'd love it if you could talk about, for example, your fight against tobacco use, or even since the book was published, you know, the Cleveland Clinic made the news for uh, severing ties and removing a very major fast food chain from all its campuses. So as I, I was thinking about, uh, when I was thinking about becoming CEO, I, I began to think about uh, what business was I was in. And I was in the healthcare business. And as I thought about it, we're really in the sickness business. So I thought, wouldn't it be great uh, to begin to um, emphasize uh, keeping people healthy? And I didn't realize, didn't think I could boil the ocean, but I could have uh, an influence on the people who worked here. And uh, they, and we really ought to model which, which good health is. So I started with smoking. And we uh, essentially banned smoking on our campus. You, cannot, you can't smoke in the parking garages or in that lawn out in front of the hospital. Um, and then uh, made a bold step. Uh, we decided to stop hiring smokers. Uh, and someone comes to us and we test them for nicotine. They test positive. We offer them uh, the uh, opportunity to go to smoking cessation and then be retested. We then uh, began to think about food and the importance of uh, that as far as obesity was concerned. And we changed it, made some 40 changes in the food in our cafeterias. And I personally wheeled the fryers out of the cafeteria. Uh, and then we went to encourage people to get exercise. So we gave people pedometers um, and uh, began to um, encourage them to get their 10,000 steps in a day. Um, over time, we've seen some remarkable things happen. We've lost over 500,000 pounds. Uh, the smoking rate now is down at 5%. And the, as you know, the national average is about 18%. Uh, and the next step was we said, okay, let's go to uh, disease management. So we picked out asthma, diabetes, hypocholesteremia, high blood pressure, uh, smoking, and obesity. And if people entered into, had one of those, entered into disease management, uh, they got a reduction in their co-pays for their insurance. What's happened over time has been pretty remarkable, both in financial and in health terms. The financial aspect of it, uh, we had our our costs going up at about seven and a half percent per year and went, uh, it then leveled off. And last year it went down uh, 2%. Um, and that's uh, per member per month of our, uh, some hundred thousand, uh, employees and dependents. And then, um, we found out that we had a 28% reduction in sick days. Um, uh, and, uh, for those people who had one of the diseases that we mentioned uh, for disease management, we had a 20% reduction in both emergency room visits and hospitalizations. Uh, so we've saved about uh, a quarter of a billion dollars uh, wow. uh, in our costs, um, and um, we've got a healthier population. The other uh, thing that I might mention is, um, and this has happened since the book was written, um, I was very concerned about uh, the drugs uh, usage in our uh, some 55,000 uh, caregivers. We've had some uh, people who died 
who are caregivers from overdoses. So I knew it was part of our organization. So um, we started uh, doing random drug testing and we did it for two reasons. One, we wanted our um, patients to be safe. Um, and two, uh, we wanted our employees to be healthy. So uh, we do random drug testing, including uh, I've been tested. And by the way, that's not the reason that I'm retiring. <laughs> um, and uh, we and so if somebody tests positive, um, we um, put them in uh, uh, rehab. Um, and so it's um, we think that we've got a safer um, hospital as a result of that and a uh, healthier uh, population. So we really think it's important to, to be concerned about the health and the welfare of your caregivers. What has been some of the reaction out of curiosity, both internally and externally, to removing the big fast food chain? We're, you know, we're no longer hiring smokers. We're doing the random drug test. What has some of the reaction been around that? Well, I've taken a lot of personal grief about that. There's been a lot of pushback. Um, it's interesting, the, the uh, initial uh, pushback was probably strongest, uh, first of all, around taking the sugar drinks out of the uh, vending machines. So you, um, and uh, there was a lot of upset with that. And then um, my, I had a long, uh, ongoing uh, discussion with um, McDonald's. Uh, it seemed uh, strange to have McDonald's in the main lobby, uh, just underneath the cardiac surgical intensive care unit, with a scent of French fries floating up into the intensive care unit. Right. Uh, so um, I asked um, McDonald's if they'd like to relocate. Uh, they didn't want to do that. I became known as the Big Mac attacker. Uh, <laughs> uh, and eventually their contract uh, went out and we brought in healthier food options. Wow. The Big Mac attacker. I, I like that nickname. Um, can you please talk a little bit about uh, the differences between small local hospitals, which, you know, in your book, you kind of compared to an old fashioned general store and large integrated health systems. Uh, why is big medicine better medicine? Well, I think, you know, if, if you stop and think about it, uh, the way the health system, the hospital system in the United States started, and let's go back to, say, 1950, um, the Hilburton Act helped every community uh, pay for and build a, a community hospital. And at that time, you know, there was not the great transportation that we have now and there uh, uh, for uh, moving people around. And secondly, there was not that many things that you could do for a patient in the hospital. There was no cardiac surgery. There was no great cures for cancer. There was uh, no joint replacements. There was no uh, Fandango uh, neurosurgical procedures. And so, um, you know, you went to the hospital to have a child, get your appendix taken out, get your fractured uh, joints looked after, um, you know, get your pneumonia uh, taken care of. And in many cases, and so, um, and so what happened was, uh, as things got more and more sophisticated, it became clear that you couldn't supply all those modalities in every location 
uh, you couldn't a afford to do it and b um if you were doing that uh, you couldn't do it at a regular enough basis so that you got really good at it and uh, lots of studies have shown that the more you do something uh the better you get at it the more efficient that you get at it and the better the res uh, results are so what we uh, begin to think about is, okay, um, let's talk about the hospitals in Cleveland and the community hospitals, and let's have them do the sort of things that are taken care of in the communities. For example, uh, so we let, and let's have them do the things that they do well, and uh, let's us uh, at the main campus uh, do the highly technical things that, uh, that are done rarely in a community hospital. So uh, we uh, made several changes. We took obstetrics out of our main campus and put it back in the community hospitals. We did the same for rehabilitation and psychiatry um, and, uh, and pediatrics moved out of the, the uh, main facility and except for specialty pediatrics to the community hospitals. Um, and uh, then uh, we brought in uh, the high technical things. The, and as a result, uh, the Cleveland Clinic is now has the highest acuity uh, patients in the country. Um, and, and then we put together a transportation system. And this is something that I saw first in Vietnam uh, when I witnessed, you know, a soldier getting shot or injured uh, in the field. They were then picked up and taken to, uh, you know, a mass unit. Uh, and then moved from there to a hospital in the in the back lines, and then moved from there to uh, the Philippines or Guam or uh, Japan, and then ultimately back to the United States. So the Air Force uh, essentially moved these patients. So we want to move. So we decided we do the same thing, and the idea is to get the uh, right patient in the right location at the right time for the right care. Uh, and so we move about, we have about 30,000 hospital transfers a year. We move people into the main campus for the high technical things, and we move them back to the community hospital uh, for the lower acuity things. And uh, that has improved the uh, satisfaction, that's decreased the costs, uh, and that has uh, improved uh, the quality. Just for any listeners who may not be as familiar with, you know, with the Cleveland Clinic, you know, you talk about a lot of what are some of your national rankings in terms of cardiac surgery and, and things like that? Uh, well, we have been ranked number one in uh, cardiac surgery and cardiology, cardiac surgery for the last 23 years by U.S. News and World Report. Uh, we're number one in urology. Uh, we have uh, uh 14 of our specialties are in the top 10 um, in the in the country by U.S. News Report standards. Wow. Can you talk a bit about uh, personalized healthcare and bringing uh, genomics into uh, Cleveland Clinic? Well, I think, you know, I, I think we're looking at a revolution right now. And as you stop and think about uh, the things that determined your uh, longevity, Obviously, there's two things um, that are major. One is the environment and the, and the things that you do to take care of your health. Uh, the second thing is your genome. And the genome is now, we're just starting to tap into the tremendous potential of this. 
Uh, we're now almost 15 years uh, since uh, the human genome was sequenced for the first time. Uh, and we're learning more and more and more about uh, understanding about its influence on um, patients' uh, sensitivity to drugs, their proclivity to different diseases, um, and how various uh, factors in the environment influence their human genome. Um, and I just, just to give you an example of the tremendous power um, that you see here, I was having a discussion a few months ago with uh, Craig Venter, who is one of the individuals who initially sequenced the human genome. And he was telling me about a study that he had just finished where they had identified uh, the portion of the human genome which determined how a person's face is going to look. So he can figure that he can go to the human genome and look at that and then predict what a person's uh, face is going to look like. That's, wow. That is uh, powerful. So yeah. I, I foresee the day when if, you know, frankly, if I was going to have a child now, um, I would want to have the child uh, sequenced at birth. Uh, so I had some idea of what the potential for diseases, what their, um, their reaction to different drugs is going to be. And I think that's going to be just the start of uh, what we uh, ultimately um, recognize in terms of the, the potential for prediction and, and care for the human genome. Right now, for example, it's being used extensively in cancer, uh, both sequencing the the, the patient and their tumor, uh, and you recognize what the, they're going to be, drugs they're going to be sensitive to. Um, it both gets you to the right drug and keeps you from having the wrong drug. So uh, tremendous potential, very, very, very exciting. The book, The Cleveland Clinic Way, was written and published a few years ago. Um, how do you feel about what has changed in American healthcare um, since the book was written and published and the direction it, it is headed in now? Well, I think we're at, at a uh, sort of a disruptive point right now in healthcare. <clears throat> and part of that is because of the tremendous financial um, burden that healthcare is uh, placing on the U.S. economy. Uh, we're at 18% uh, of the GDP, uh, way more than any other country in the world, uh, and with not substantially better results. And I think that it has now gotten the attention of um, both the private sector and as well as the government. Uh, I think an example of that is when you recently saw um, Jeff Bezos, uh, Jamie Dimon, and Warren Buffett come together and begin to talk about what they were going to do uh, to try and reduce the cost of health care for their employees. Um, and I welcome that. I think this is bringing new emphasis uh, to the problem and uh, new thinking to the issue. Um, so um, it has now gotten to the point, so we uh, um, have to do something to uh, change the trajectory around. And, and that's going to be hard to do with uh, two factors uh, being uh, ever-present. One is people living longer, so there's more chronic disease. Uh, and two, there's more things we can do for people as we get better and better uh, at uh, uh, treating diseases and kind of keeping people healthy. Uh, it's uh, expensive. So um, 
you know, we, we, those are really, the, the finance is really a very significant factor. As a result of that, I think also that um, Wall Street has now recognized that this is a huge industry. This is the, right. uh, now $3.3 trillion. And they all, everybody has now said, oh, hey, listen, maybe we can do something in healthcare." Um, and so the number of startups that you see <clears throat> coming into the healthcare arena are enormous. Uh, right. And so with more original thinking coming, um, more emphasis on the financial aspect of things, I think we're going to see tremendous uh, changes in, in healthcare and I, I'm very positive about those. I think they're a good thing for our country. I think they're a good thing for people. Um, and because we can't continue on the current trajectory. Well, Toby, I, I've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, my final question for you is what are you working on now? Well, my main objective is to help make a very smooth transition here at the Cleveland Clinic. To, and I'm going to help uh, my successor any way I can. Um, and I've had some interesting inquiries from uh, both the uh, private sector and uh, in the not-for-profit sector of how I can help them going forward. And so I'm, I'm, I'm learning about a whole new segment of society that I didn't know a lot about. Well, that sounds great. Uh, I want to thank you again so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Take care. Thank you very much. It's been a nice opportunity for me.